Dad moved to the hills when I could barely walk or talk. He cleared a stand of cedar, built a home of native rock. Now my daddy is a lawyer, but the daddy I recall wore boondock boots and a khaki shirt and a sweat-stained farm straw. And his dreams are in the hills And the limestone rim rock cedar breaks Home of the deer and the whippoorwill Seep spring down by the canyons Thick with the open hill Daddy's dreams are in the hills Daddy's dreams are in the hills Then when the, the time come to, to uh, get interested in the bull then, the, the, the way that happened was this. The, the bull family, Howard and Abe, were friends of mine, and, and Howard in particular, he um, called me into his office one day at the bank. He was in the bank and said that he and his brother and sister had decided that they were going to dispose of the 160 acres they had in the Brown Survey that they had inherited from their parents or their grandparents. And... Uh, at that time, there was no Toro Canyon Road at all, and, and the, but the high road was in there. And uh, they said that I had been taking care of their land for the last uh, 15 to 20 years and keeping other people off of it, and that they'd going to give me the first, first whack at it. And they said that they wanted $500 an acre. Well, it didn't take me long to figure that uh, $500 times 160 was $80,000. And at that time, I was uh, up to my neck in debt on other transactions that I generally stayed. And so I said, well, uh, you've, uh, you've uh, just invited me to go bankrupt. I told Abe that, and he laughed. He said, well, you, you think about it and see what you can do with it. And so the only thing I could do was to, at that time, I didn't have the Wentland boys uh, backing on that sort of a thing. And so I went to, or maybe I'd already uh, up the Hilton debt to the Wentland. So I went to see Sterling and cried on his shoulder and told him that this looked like a pretty good deal over there and, and that we might could get it. And, and uh he was familiar with it. Now, Sterling, he had horses when he was out there, and he rode all over that country. He knew every foot of it just like I did, only I walked over mine, and he rode over it to find it. And uh, he said to him, he said, let's buy it. Well, I said, Sterling, how in the hell are we going to buy this? I don't have any money. Well, he said, we'll go down to Abe's bank and borrow it. Well, Abe was vice president of the bank, American National Bank, and Sterling had a bunch of stocks and securities and things that he could put up his security, and you, I knew the bank wouldn't loan money on land that the, the president was selling or the vice president was selling. And so we went down and made a deal anyway, and Sterling uh, uh, worked it out to where I owned a half interest in the thing, and he put up the financing, and, and then we started to, we didn't do any development on, on, the, bull, on the, the bull land for quite a little while. But in the course of events, and as we uh, would sell lots and, uh, and houses and things over on the high road, well, uh, uh, along come the time when uh, the the uh, the only road we had in there was the Trail of Madrones, and that didn't go through the bull land. We didn't build any roads uh, at all except on land that we owned, and that since we didn't own that, when we put the first road going north or coming south, we had to stay on the land that I owned in the Brown Survey, and some land that the Griffins let me the Griffins let me come through theirs, and and so we were hampered in that connection. Well, there was a Dr. Glenn had uh, bought a piece of land in there from L.T. Stewart that run east and west and was uh, uh, went across where the, uh, where the uh, Trail of Madrones is now and then tacked into the Larson land. And uh, 
So, uh, but the, the, the trailer madrones was unheard of and undreamed of in those days. But when Dr. Glenn bought this and the, the county engineer, Mr. John, uh, John uh, uh, Morgan, he came to Sterling and I once and said that trailer madrones road is just too crooked and, and is not the kind of a permanent road I'd want to be there in north-south artery going back through the peninsula area then. He didn't call it peninsula. It wasn't called that then. And he told Sterling and I that he would like to to build a road where the present trailer uh uh, where the uh, uh, Total Canyon Road now is located. Well, we own the, the bull land, and we could see the advantage of putting a road in there, and we told him we could give him the right-of-way uh, through the bull land and let it connect up with the old trailer madrones over there about um, uh, where the Bull Mountain is now, the entrance to the Bull Mountain. That's where it, it, uh, the trailer madrones was on our land. And so uh, Dr. Glenn owned this land, so Sterling and I bought Dr. Glenn's land, all of it. He didn't want to sell a part of it. He wanted to sell it all. And he was righteous about that, righteous about it. And so we bought the Glen land and then gave the county the right-of-way to, to where the beginning of the uh, Total Canyon Road comes off of the high road now. And so the county built that road in there, and then they went on through the bull land down by the, where the uh, Slow Turtle subdivision is, and then on up to, to, to where the, the entrance to the bull mountain is on the top. That was, uh, then he, th- th- that was the end of the bull land. Now that purchase and gift was made not in contemplation of us subdividing where the slow turtle is now or the bull mountain. We had no plans uh, along that way at all. But Sterling and I, just out of the goodness of our hearts, and it was to the development of the country, we, we bought and gave the county that right away. Now there was another transaction that took place along about that time. The Westlake Drive it, uh, the, it was not paved and it was get, just wearing out between uh, the intersection where Redbud Trail is and, and where the high road is. That's about a mile of road in there. And the city of Westlake Hills didn't have any money to pave it. And Sterling and Harvey Lane and Emmy Jr. and I put the money up to pave that road the last time it was paved. Of course, developers are supposed to pave the streets and things in their developments. But there's so many of these roads out here that, that Sterling and I and Harvey Lane and Emmy Jr., we built. It had nothing to do with our subdivisions or ones that we had planned at that time. I had about lost all interest in subdividing in 1960 when uh, uh, a little before I met uh, uh, Joyce and and then when we married in 1962 then she rekindled my interest in su- subdividing and we started off all over again and that was uh, I was involved with Sterling at that time and she became thoroughly involved with Sterling also and and uh, she, she has done real well since then. Now after we married uh, the trailer madrone I mean the uh, uh, Total Canyon Road was put in, and uh, we decided to uh, subdivide the Slo- uh, Sh- Slow Turtle subdivision down there. It was called the Westlake Highlands, and, and Malcolm and Becky Fox, they had bought some land there from us, and, and they wanted to subdivide this there. So together we made the, the Fast Fox subdivision in there, and then what's on the south side of the Fast Fox uh, we called the Slow Turtle, and Joyce named the Slow Turtle subdivision. And she walked over every foot of it and every line as we subdivided that, making it into one-acre lots. And that was uh, seven or eight years before the city began requiring one-acre lots. They were The city actually encouraged us to make half-acre lots out of all this stuff, and we refused to do it and made one-acre lots. The excuse the planning department of the city at that time gave us to make one-acre lots, one-half-acre lots, was that it wouldn't be practical to put sewage to these lots later on if they were uh, an acre big. And uh, we just told them, the planters down there, that it's not going to ever be practical to put sewage out in the hill, and we're making the lots one acre so we can put a septic system that will be a permanent 
addition to the to the territory. Anyway, that we started that, and and we're staying with it right now. Anyway, those two subdivisions were made by Malcolm and Becky and and uh, uh, Sterling. I believe Sterling died along about the time we got started on that, on that s slow turtle subdivision. But at anyway, when he passed away, well, Gene uh, was having a pretty hard time uh, meeting the, uh, the state tax. It was quite a little bit. Sterling had a lot of property down at Matagorda Bay that he tried to get me to go in with him, but I wouldn't go into anything that would involve a, a debt, and I didn't. But he had quite a little bit of property down there, and, and he just wasn't ready for that. And so uh, Gene uh, had to dig up somewhere around three or $400,000 as a state tax, and they didn't wait more than a year on that. And so the first thing that, that we did, uh, uh, she wanted to sell that piece of land that she owned over uh, just south of their home in the McCutcheon Survey. They had approximately 100 acres there, maybe less than that. And uh, uh, she was made an offer of $70,000 on it. And George got in touch with her and said, that's just not too little. Said, just don't do it at all. Said, let me have a chance to set it for you. And she called up one client, that is John Scanlon, took him out and showed him the tract and sold it to him for either ninety dollars or $100,000 cash. And so Jean got that to help with her estate taxes. Then along about that time, one night, Josh and I was having supper down at the, the Nighthawk. And we were sitting over against the wall, and Frank Irvin was down there with some of his friends, and he was kind of table-hopping around, uh, speaking to everybody. And he, come, he came over to my table, and, uh, and Josh and I, and, and told us that he had uh, about ready to build his permanent home out in the hills, and he wanted to get on top of a mountain, and he'd look back in to see his baby, the university, and dream about it. After this conversation at the Nighthawk with Frank, Josh and I sat about... Uh, talking to Gene Holloway, who owned the major proportion of the, the uh, 60 acres, more or less, that we had left in the Bull Mountain. We made a trade or a deal with Gene, whereby she was to get uh, $100,000 on about the last week in each year, the next two years coming up. She was to get 200000 out of it for her interest in it, and we were to pay her in, in yearly installments of two two years. We decided to set up eight shares, and Joyce and I were to take four shares for what we had into the property. My son, Polk, had an interest, which we rounded off as being one-fourth. Then we let Jeff have one-fourth. We were going to sell one-fourth of it to uh, Ted Wentland, but Ted was in the hospital about the time, and time was running out on us, and so we couldn't uh, get him uh, down to set, uh, trading terms. And so then we also offered Jack Eisenberg, or at least we tried to get him on phone, and we couldn't contact him to let him have an eighth. And each of these eighths were to be valued at $60,000 each. At the time, Ed Gillen was officing at the Wentland office, and he heard us talking or trying to contact the, uh, Ted Wentland, and he knew what we were doing in there. So he come in and volunteered that he would uh, put up the 60000 and it would let him have an eighth interest. And as time was running out, we, we did that. Thinking we could put this deal over, uh, we then invited Frank to uh, call him up. We hadn't talked to Frank about that yet, but we called him one morning on the phone and told him that we uh, uh, were going to subdivide and develop the Bull Mountain and wanted to know if he wanted to come out and take a look at uh, some of the lots on the top and uh, the east side and see whether that would suit his uh, dreams, uh, a place to put a house. And... Uh, he said, yes, he would like to do that. I said, how soon do you want to come out here? And he said, now. Well, I said, we're not ready right now. Why don't you make it about noon, which was about two hours off. 
And so he agreed to come out to our little office, which was then located uh, next to the fire station on uh, Westlake Drive. And so Frank came out, and uh, the only way we could get up on the Bull Mountain at that time was the old road that uh, kind of angled up the side on the north side, and it was a, a tremendous hazard to go up there. So we had gotten my old yellow pickup down so that we could make it up the mountain. We couldn't have made it up in any kind of a stock car at all. So we, Frank came out after lunch, and he was dressed up in his business suit. And so we put him, uh, Joyce was, had to drive because I couldn't see. And uh, we put Frank in the middle, and I got on the outside, and, and uh, Joyce drove. The only way to get up there, you turned off a, a ranch road, or, uh, if you can call it that, on the, right off of Toro Canyon up on the north side. And it was, as I said, a terrible way to get up there. But we turned off, and Josh said to Frank, said, uh, Mr. Irvin said, I don't know whether we're going to make it or not. I, I never have made it before, but we'll try. So she hit those uh, ledges and, and bounced around, and finally we got up on top of the mountain. And, of course, Frank was a little worried about whether he was going to come out alive or not on that trip, and I was too. We got out of the pickup and walked over to the east front of the mountain, and, and uh, there were two sites there, the one that we own now, is, is on the south side of it, and the one that Frank took finally was in the middle, and Mrs. Helen Lee owns the one on the north of those three lots that's on the front there, on the top of the mountain. We had decided to let Frank have his choice of any one of those three lots. And uh, in, in my own heart, I was hoping he would take the middle one, the one that he did take, and let us have the one on the south at that time. That's where we wanted to put our home. But anyway, we didn't tell him of our choice, and, and he said, uh, he looked at the one in the middle, he said, I'll take it. Then he said, how much is it going to cost me? We told him then about our project of trying to divide it into eight shares and, and set each share up at $60,000, I believe it was, and uh, that uh, we'd have to build the roads up and get, get it in shape where he could build on it before he'd have to put up any of his money. And uh, so um, uh, then we told him, he said, now, since you're, we've got an eighth interest left, we'll just let you have this eighth interest uh, uh, for your 60000 and and you'll get the lot as a part of your share then when we start to divide them. So he thought that was fair, which it was, and we went back down the mountain. In a month or two, we had the lines for the lots in phase one measured out, and then uh, we'd uh, gotten contracts on the development, and putting in the underground utilities and putting the roads and things in, and so uh, uh, we had an initial partition so Frank could get a deed to his lot out of the partnership. And all of the other partners also took lots at that time. Before we put a road in to where you could get up on top of the mountain, other than going up this side hill cut we had on the north side, we got a call from uh, the City National Bank stating that uh, they had a client in Dallas that was interested in, in buying a lot out there. And they uh, uh, had uh, their real estate person had been out there and looked at it and and uh, they thought Joyce knew more about values out there than anyone else. And they wanted to ask her about what this lot on the Bull Mountain that was next to Frank's would be worth. And that was talking about the one that Mrs. Lee now lives on or built her home on. And uh, they didn't know it that, at that time that Joyce and I owned the mountain. And so Joyce kind of laughed and she said, well, I'd be a bad one to give you a value on that lot because, you see, I own it. And said... Uh, I can only tell you this, that if whoever your client is wants it, they're going to pay $60,000 for it. That didn't scare them off. So they, we set up a time for uh, two bankers to come down from Dallas who was handling 
the trust fund for this client. And uh, we couldn't get them up on top of the mountain, of course, without just riding up in this old yellow pickup that I had. So they came out to the office, and Josh was to drive, and, and uh, uh, I think Mrs. Lee was with him. And she got in the front seat with Josh, and the two bankers and I got on the road on the tailgate of the, of the pickup. And we finally got up that mountain by bouncing around a little bit, and Josh drove over on Mrs. Lee's lot, what uh, came hers later, and these men got out and looked, and they both gasped, and they said, well, if this was in Dallas, it would be worth a half a million dollars. And so they passed on the value of it, and uh, we finally made that sale to Mrs. Lee. We had several other interesting experiences in the sale of lots, but anyone interested in the history can uh, read the deed records, and I won't have to recite it all right here. I might suffice it to say that uh, Mr. Irwin and Frank Irwin, instead of uh, paying $60,000 for a lot, Frank got the lot, and, and the sales up to date, uh, the heirs have received about four or five times the original investment as their share of the profits. Then we progressively set up say, phase two and phase four on the Bull Mountain, leaving the development as it now stands. Needless to say, Joyce and I had all of our credit and everything else tied up in the Bull Mountain, and we were not able to reach out and buy into anything else at that particular time. However, Andy Thompson, a very dear friend of ours, and the grandson of Andrew Zilker, Andrew Zilker had bought and put together about a 60-acre tract over on the, the uh, west side of Toro Canyon, uh, just sort of northwest of the Bull Mountain. And uh, he wanted to get rid of that, and so uh, he put it on the market, I think, for, yeah, for $10,000 an acre, and asked George to try to find him a customer for that price. Well, uh, Josh uh, said about it, and we've had a man come in from either California or uh, Arizona somewhere, and he made a contract with Andy to buy this 60 acres at the agreed price, and uh, he didn't put up with five or six thousand, maybe five thousand dollars as earnest money, and they gave him 60 day free ride, and that's what it uh, turned out to be. But when the 60 days was up, and uh, we got ready to close, we couldn't find the purchaser. And we tried everywhere in the world. We called him, we wired him, and we did everything to get a hold of him. And we let it run about a month late, and he still couldn't be found. And so finally, Andy decided he'd just go on and forfeit, uh, close the contract out, and take the man's $5,000, which he did. In the meantime, Joyce and I were embarrassed over the fact that we had gotten him a prospect that wouldn't buy at that price. And in the meantime, we had also run into uh, Charles Callister. He was uh, out here buying around, and and um, getting his feet wet, and we talked to him about the deal and showed him that, that we thought it was a good buy, but we weren't as much interested in buying it at that time as we were just keeping Andy from being embarrassed over the situation or us being embarrassed over it. And so we asked Andy would it be all right for Mr. Callistead and Josh and I to just step in this other bar's shoes and let him take the $5,000, which was earnest money, and put in his pocket, and then we'd pay uh, take over the contract. And Andy said, yeah, he'd do that. Well, we didn't make a written contract. We just showed up down at the abstract company and told Luther Davis to, to, what the deal was. And he said, where's your contract? Well, I said, we shook hands on it. We don't need a contract. So we put up 10% of the money in cash there, and Charles took a half of it, and, and the other half went in my name. That's where we got a hold of the Thompson Mountain without any contract at all. But we had good terms at that time. Nothing was moving out here, and Andy let us have it. Um, had interest only for a year or two, and uh, then things began to move after about two years we had hold of it, but of course we were 
pretty well strapped to pay the interest on that and take care of what we owed on the bull for the next two years. It paid off, however. In, in 1983, we, uh, Charles and, and Joyce and I sold the Bull Mountain, I mean the Thompson Mountain, for that's what we call it, for a, a substantial gain. And along about this same period of time, around the beginning of uh, about 1980 and in there, Joe Mitchell uh, was sick and he was living where on his at his home down on the lake and he owned quite a little bit of land up there. He owned 160 acres, his family did, that lay north of the bull and run all the way out to the lake. And uh, so um, he wanted to sell his. And so uh, Joyce got to selling. He sold uh, John Lloyd, a, a bunch of it, just north of the bull mountain. However, prior to that time, Joe Metcher's nephew, who owned uh, a strip of about 40 or 50 acres uh, over on the east side of the Brown Survey, uh, Joyce had bought in Sterling Holloway had bought that. It's where the, the forests of Westlake are now located. And we just sat on that for 15 to 20 years. Had bought it about, I think, around $2,000 an acre at the time of our original purchase. John Lloyd had purchased this tract of land that John, this uh, tract uh, called the forest, uh, on the west. And uh, he sent some men out to uh, cut the cedar off of it or do something like that on it. When, and uh, one of my uh, Edward Pierce noticed that there was some posts coming uh, through Westlake Hills, and he knew that no one had any right to cut posts out in that area, so he went out and found out that that uh, John had uh, let somebody go out there and start to cutting posts, and instead of just cutting it on the acreage that he had that lay west of us, they were running all over our uh, acreage and, and uh, cutting trees down too. Well, uh, I was living down on Lost Canyon at that time, and Edward told me that. I said, well, Edward, you... Uh, Come down here and get me in your pickup, and you bring your rifle, and I'll bring my shotgun, and we'll go over and see who these people are that's cutting our, our, our cedar off. So uh, we went over there, and Joyce couldn't stand it. She had to get in her car, too, and follow us after a little bit of time. But we got over there, and, and there was uh, these men cutting. They were all kin to Edward, and I told them that they were off on, somebody, on my line and uh, told them that we had a little altercation there and work by words. And finally, a deputy sheriff sh showed up down there with us standing around in a group there just deciding whether they had a right to cut the timber where they were cutting it or not. By that time, Joyce had gotten there. Of course, Edward and I left our weapons in the, in the pickup, but we were just standing out. One of the men who professed to be the man in charge of the Lloyd operations uh, uh, said that he knew where the line was and I got he'd going to keep on cutting there. And we had a few words. We told him he wasn't unless he unless he had a bigger gun than we had. and So he made some unsavory remark uh, uh, that it w didn't sound good in front of ladies. At least Edward Pierce thought that. So he jumped across in front of the deputy sheriff and slapped this old boy and then knocked him down. <laughs> and Edward said, you can talk like that in front of your wife if you want to, but you're not going to talk like that in front of Mrs. Shelton. Well, the deputy sheriff said, uh, 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 talk, talk to this old boy after he got up from his knee, and he said, uh, I saw him hit you. You can follow on him for assault if you want to. Well, I made the remark. I said, well, if he does do that, he better not ever come out in these hills anymore. Well, they, it didn't go that far. He decided not to. Uh, they decided to leave, and they quit their, their operation, and we were right. We, they were cutting on our land. And I, so instead of coming home with Edward, I just got in the car with Joyce and come home. And uh, Joyce was laughing a little bit. She said, uh, Emmett said, uh, you know, Edward was awful upset about what that man said in front of me, but said, actually, under my breath, I was saying worse things about him.
Joyce has always been one to like controversy, and she was getting ready to see a pretty good fight about that time. Daddy's dreams are in the hills. Daddy's dreams are in the hills.